Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman. Welcome to this month's episode. Today we have a special interview that Eva did with the artist Anna Dimitriou on the 10th of June. Uh, it's a little bit different than what we normally do, so I really enjoyed it and I hope you do too. Hi everyone. I am very pleased, very happy to have with us today Anna Dumitriou, an artist that is going to talk to us about her path and how she has ended up being one of the best artists in presenting antimicrobial resistance and antibiotics related work. Anna, could you please introduce yourself to our audience? Yes, hello Eva. I'm an artist and I'm based in Brighton in the UK and I've been working with bacteria and bio art for over 20 years and I work hands-on in the lab to make all my artworks. You say you work with uh, bio art. Can you explain what bio art is? Well, there's uh, a range of different views on this but I mean I'm very much of the view that it's work to do with living things and, and involving living things sometimes or, or life or biological media. Other people, kind of purists, that say it has to be alive, but there, there's different debates on this, and uh, William Myers describes it in the way that I'm kind of talking about here in his book, Bioart Altered Realities, and um, I think Eduardo Katz is quite happy with the broader term, and he was the person that actually coined the term, so uh, yeah, I think it can be quite broad, actually. I mean, rather, not necessarily things like paintings of biological things but actually involving the biological media somehow but it doesn't have to be living there's mm-hmm. lots of biological medium doesn't doesn't live like dna yeah it can be <laughs> the signatures of life so mm. to speak yeah mm. um, how did you end up being interested in bio art or what is somewhat your path up to up to that point um well like i said i've been doing this for quite a long time um, so I did a degree in painting and then I did a, a master's degree and I was quite interested in themes around immortality and things like that. And this is just, you have to imagine that this is just at the sort of time when the World Wide Web was becoming available to people like myself. You know, if you worked in a university in a computer science lab, you would have had it sooner. But if you were an artist in an art school, you didn't have access to things like that. So it was just as that was kind of coming out. And you could start to kind of, not Google, because we didn't have Google then, but you could start to search for things on the internet and find out a bit different stuff than you would be exposed to in your kind of normal everyday life. Because we've got a big library at the art school that I went to, which was the University of Brighton, which is full of art books. And they have a, a biology library too, but that's on a different campus. And it, it wouldn't be somewhere that you'd normally go to. So like, how would you stumble upon that kind of information. So I started to kind of research it a bit through this and kind of found out that the that there's this gaping difference between what the the stories that the scientists know that you know that they just look is just normal to them and the stuff that we as kind of lay people get told. And like the way that you have to piece together these tiny bits of information, which would be kind of headlines in newspapers, adverts saying that, you know, bacteria were all out to kill you and you needed to uh, clean them all off with, you know, bleach or something like that. That would be all you'd get about it. And then, and then, so, so there was a lot in the newspaper about E. coli infections at the time, the 0157 strain. And I remember kind of finding out and stumbling upon the fact that E. coli was actually part of our gut bacteria that we needed to digest our food. I I wouldn't even say gut flora at the time. It was just like they were living in us and they were helping us to live. And so I was like, well, that's odd, isn't it? Because all I think of it is this deadly disease. But they're living inside us and helping us kind of eat and and live. And we kind of co-evolved with them being able to do this stuff. And I was like, that's very strange. And most people don't know that. 
So the whole thing is a sort of starting point from that. And then I've just gone further and further and further into this gap between what the scientists know and what the wider public are allowed to know because of these various power structures around this stuff. Like it's to do with, I mean, it's to do with research funding as well, but a lot of it's to do with advertising. And and it's just this thing, like people are more interested in sharks than goldfish. It's like they like things that are scary. So it's always presented as this bad, scary thing and so we don't have this understanding and so I, I started working with a microbiologist Dr John Paul at Brighton Hospital and he said well Anna you've got to do it you know you've got to do it right I'm going to teach you how to do a lab book so so <laughs> you know here's me doing my lab book and doing my experiments and I decided well there was this tv show on as well which you probably had there as well called how clean is your house so it or an equivalent they have it all around the world I think everywhere I've spoken to seems to have their own version of it and it was two crazy cleaning ladies who would go around swabbing people with a microbiologist swabbing people's houses and saying look you've got a strain of Yersinia on your pillow that this is an actual episode and that's related (laughs) to the deadly plague and you know that's what they told people so it was like these people were just like they go I've got plague on my pillow how did that get there you know they don't explain all that stuff Mm -hmm. so I've always been very interested in kind of philosophical notions of the sublime, which is a kind of thing in aesthetic theory where it's to do with a kind of awe or just short of terror that you feel before something, which is kind of an equalising thing for like all people. So a a rich, a billionaire Mm -hmm. or poor person would all feel the same sort of thing in front of this power. And so there's, there's this aspect. And then Kant, Immanuel Kant went on to sort of talk about this, um, mathematical sublime and dynamical sublime and Jean-François Lyotard talks about you know talks about things like this as well this interconnectedness of things and the vastness the the I'll paraphrase Lyotard but it was something like the straining of the mind at the edges of reason and the edges of itself that's a bit wrong that Mm -hmm. quote but um but something like that and this sort of thing sort of when you start to think about how many bacteria there are around us and that they're all signaling to each other and signaling to themselves and things like that it really does kind of embody these notions of the sublime and Edmund Burke although he wrote this book in the 18th century um, his philosophical inquiry on the beautiful and the sublime uh, which went on to inspire Kant he he did talk about the very littlest things being sublime like the very tiniest things because he was aware of microscopy already by mm-hmm. then because it's it's after Van Leeuwenhoek and it's after Robert Hooke in London publishes Micrographia so he was aware of this and he also says in it that obscurity is very important as well so it's this thing that you can't quite access so there's all these things were kind of tying into it and bacteria kind of really sort of fitted that idea for me because they're doing all this stuff and they're so amazing and interconnected so it's part of it is this revealing this hidden story as best I can because the story is not yet revealed to any of us is it fully Mm -hmm. you know we we now with the new technologies which have emerged since I've been working in this field because so at that time I started to work and I wanted to study the normal flora so it was like the counter to how clean is your house it was how sublime is your ecosystem Mm -hmm. and this way predates discussions on the microbiome for instance so I mean the term was kind of coined but to mean something else so it's like it's before we had the tools to do this so I was doing traditional microbiology I was swapping my house culturing on different kinds of media and then looking doing API biochemical tests to see what they were and typing it into a computer system which would say something like 63% staph aureus <laughs> or something and, and that would be about how good you could identify mm-hmm. it in that time and then since then you know, I've learned all about genomics and, and CRISPR and I've been working with that all hands-on just as it came out because I was very lucky to be part of, through John Paul, who was uh, the Public Health England. Through him, I was able to become artist-in-residence on a project at Oxford University called Modernising Medical Microbiology. You just mentioned that you are an artist-in-residence at the Modernising Medical Microbiology Project at the University of Oxford, but also mm-hmm. you are an artist-in-residence in the National Collection of Type Culture of at Public Health England. Yes. What does that mean to be an artist in residence in such a scientific place and how do you work with them? 
Well, because they're involved as well with modernising medical microbiology. And so I met Julie from the project and uh, she later on asked me if I would illustrate or share some of my artworks to illustrate their new brochure. And then later on, they said, would you like to become artists in residence with us? And we're doing all this... um, amazing historic work because they've been sequencing whole genome sequencing their collection mostly on packed bio stuff with the welcome sanger and uh, it's called the nctc 3000 project so the 3000 like most important organisms that they've got in their collection so i began to work with them so i work in the lab i extract dna quite a lot from these pathogens and and things like that and then i incorporate it into artworks so I made my plague dress with them, with their collection of Yersinia pestis strains, which I extracted the DNA from killed samples in the lab with them. And I did that hands-on myself. But I have also handled live plague in previous work where, yeah, I was working in the Category 3 lab with the scientists there. That's a very interesting and a very different kind of work, I would say, of all their other artists, even though art, I, I see it as a very extensive thing, like anything can be art and the methods and mm. the ways that an artist can work with can vary so, so much. But uh, having here an example of someone that, you know, your materials are the art that you do actually come directly from the lab. It's really, really amazing. And the inspirations from the lab as well. It's the conversations with the scientists as I'm making it and the stories. And then I kind of research and discuss, I come up with questions that I ask them and they reflect on. And the whole piece kind of comes up from, it's a, it, the, the thing with me is about talking about the history and talking about the future, like where we've been and where we're going. And that's why the National Collection of Type Cultures is a kind of dream gig, if you like, for me, because it has all this history that they have like the oldest living cholera in the world from 1915, right up to, you know, the latest whole genome sequencing or proteomics technology that they're working with there. So you've got this whole thread and it's like, what happened in the past with this? what will happen in the future because you can you can sort of look at the COVID-19 pandemic and you can see like a lot of things repeated themselves from kind of plague history and and other pandemics and then you go right up to this cutting edge technology which means that within you know less than a year we have a vaccine and then interesting things about where that goes as well so I've made some artworks with the COVID uh, well with a SARS-CoV-2 RNA construct as well um, which is from a plasmid so it's a safe reagent not the actual the actual thing or anything <laughs> yeah that would be very wrong yeah. and I'm I'm just to put everyone's mind at rest I'm incredibly up on the health and safety and I work with leading scientists to ensure all that stuff is there so you have the real organisms or some aspect of the real organisms in the artwork but it's completely safe mm-hmm it's important which is, which is like this thing of the sublime because you're supposed to be sort of safe but have this free song of terror mm-hmm. and it's, it's 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 this tension there that it's still at play it evokes the feelings mm. of of what it could be but it's not there so it's a, it's a, the means of communication for it um you already mentioned some of your work is very biology based i'm very interested in the works that you have done for communication or exploring ideas around antibiotic and antimicrobial resistance. Mm. I have seen, for example, the hunt of new antimicrobials, the resistant quilt, the MRSA Mm. quilt, and ex voto as well. How did you learn about antibiotic resistance and how did it inspire you to make it part of your art? I mean, it was through modernizing medical microbiology because that was, I think, about... I started working with them about 11 years ago. That was sort of the big idea behind it, that you'd be able to track these antibiotic resistance genes and you'd be able to target the medications, which is something that they've been able to do for TB now from the genome. So this dream that they had is, is you know, coming to the, the fore. And so they were looking at these kind of issues. And I first started looking at MRSA. The hospital here where Dr. John Paul was the consultant microbiologist that had a very big outbreak of MRSA in the sort of the time when MRSA was kind of all in all the news stories and so they had these collections of the samples from the outbreak which they'd managed to get a handle on and they wanted to know why 
Brighton Hospital got this big infection and where it came from and things like that. And what they found was that it was a completely different strain to what was circulating in all the rest of the country. And it had genes for vancomycin resistance as well, although it wasn't vancomycin resistant, but it was this, it was a certain different strain. So the way the press presented this, it's like it was all dirty hospitals. Um, we need to clean up these disgusting, dirty hospitals as this is why the disease is spreading. I mean, there was an element of that people have maybe got a bit complacent, but as these antibiotic-resistant bacteria sort of became more prevalent and things like that, because they're, they're evolved to the ecological niche of the hospital and to sick people, they produce these lovely biofilms that help them spread along the kind of the, the things that they put inside people's bodies and the drips and, and stuff like that. And so the press, again, were presenting this story as one thing, but actually the story was completely different. The story was that we had a completely different strain circulating here that had these different genes. And if this spreads to other places, everywhere else is going to get... It's like the COVID variants that we get now. One becomes a dominant and things like that. And that was, you know, a possibility at this time. But before that, we had no understanding of it. So the MRSA quilt came out of that. And discussions with James Price, um, who's now at Imperial, on that... And, you know, he, he was like a, a young scientist at the time. He's quite, he's more senior now. But, um, and he was like showing me the Petri dishes and going, and these are really cool because when we grow them on these um, agar plates, they grow a beautiful shade of blue, uh, like denim, he said. And I was like, oh, that's exciting because I was doing a lot with textiles and things. And, and I was like, I wonder if we could put cloth in it and they'd encourage them to grow through the cloth. And, and I wonder what would happen if we tried to, to sterilise it or something, because I knew that it would have really worked out at this point, I needed to sterilise them. And, and we had no idea if that would work, so we tried it, and then we created patterns on the, on the kind of quilt squares that we cut out of calico with antibiotic discs and things like that, or, or capoxetin strips and, and all sorts of things, like and vancomycin discs, and uh, cultured them, put them in an autoclave bag and put them in the autoclave, and lo and behold, they stayed a beautiful denim blue and they still, they still are, thank goodness. So the MRSA quilt was then made from these autoclaved traces of the, of the dangerous bacteria. And it's quite interesting, when I, when I showed it in Oxford, the microbiologists would go up and kind of try and stroke it because they kind of find it fascinating. But the bioinformaticians were like, I'm not going near that. <laughs> Because they don't have that understanding, but that that sort of frisson. Although these are people like very leading scientists who work with the bioinformatics side, they're not so used to the lab side. So they they were still having that tension. So um, we thought that was quite interesting, and we had some microscope slides in the in the gallery with my microscope, and um, we were showing the bioinformaticians who work with MRSA um, data showing them the bugs and they were like I've never actually looked at it before you know so that was kind of kind of fascinating these sort of worlds and how the data is separated out and kind of bringing these worlds together as well and getting different scientists kind of connected with with different areas of their research. That's very important you know the one of the aims of this center is that AMR is such a very broad problem you know you have the biology issue you have the policy issue you have of course the human behavior issue and we feel that there is not enough conversation between all the people working in these areas mm -hmm. and they need to understand each other they need to have a common language they need to be able to share their challenges or their problems and how what happens in one area might be affecting another area as well so this is a beautiful example of how mm -hmm. you know a bioinformatician working on the data on MRSA that has never really seen the bug or has understood how it grows on a plate or what does it mean when it has a mutation that they are analyzing. It's really cool. Mm -hmm. These works on antibiotic and resistance have also been shown to the layman public. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's the main that's the main audience. So I wonder how do this exhibition affect the general public and how do you see that this has raised awareness about the importance of microbiology and the importance of understanding the problem of antibiotic resistance as well? 
well, sometimes when they're shown, they have quite large audiences coming through. Uh, but a particular good example was when I had this show in Oxford. It was at the Museum of the History of Science. It's a beautiful location. It's next to the Sheldonian Theatre. It's right in the heart of Broad Street in Oxford with these huge statues outside. It's a sort of classic location. It was in this museum, which all the tourist buses go past and everything. And uh, they put a huge banner outside. It said, Bioart and Bacteria, the Art of Anna Dimitri and apparently people come in and say I didn't know what bioart was so I thought I'd stumble in you know and, and see what it was and it ended up having like really quite a lot of visitors like 35,000 or something like that visitors through and one of the scientists uh, Nicola Fawcett who I collaborate with she said she would love to go there and sort of follow people around the exhibition and they would stare closely I'm going to describe it because this is a podcast they would sort of stare with their eyes slightly squinted at the artwork and sort of what the hell's this and then glance at the label because I like to have a like a short description label that's just enough to kind of draw you in which mentions the materials and stuff like that so she said that they would sort of squint at the artwork and stare at it and then look at the label and then look back at the artwork and then go oh oh and then look back at the label again for the next bit of information and then so you'd get this sort of dialogue and she said that people would go around the whole exhibition and looking at every work like that and and things and she would love following them around and we do loads of public workshops as well like hands-on making things so you mentioned this piece ex voto that I do um it was instigated through this exhibition this um at the Museum of History of Science. And it was actually for Back from the Dead, which was a show that they did on the history of penicillin because they have Florian Chain's collection in that museum. And so it was a sort of contemporary work that was in that. And people could come and make a kind of secular votive, which is like a like you'd see in a kind of Greek church, that sort of thing hanging up, uh, which is usually a sort of a wish or a prayer or giving thanks for something that you want like if you've got a bad leg you go to the shop and you buy a silver votive with a with a leg on it and you go and hang it up in the church and so they're really weird kind of things even when you see them in churches and apparently they've got contemporary ones now where you can like get a picture of a mobile phone on it or something if you've lost your phone or got a new phone or something you want to give thanks for that so that's the modern kind of thing and lots of Different religions have them in different forms. So you can find them in Japan, you can find them in India. So I wanted to do a kind of secular votive where people talked about their experience of antibiotic resistance. So we use a kind of softish metal, which you can kind of press hard on and draw your own picture so people made their own and I made a lot of them sometimes I worked on the ones that people have made as well and now there are probably thousands of them they're currently in the Valkoff Museum in Nijmegen um, in a show called De Pest which means the plague um, and the reason it's in Nijmegen is as the famous plague doctor with the kind of the beak image one of the classic images was and I'm not going to attempt to pronounce his name, but he was from Nijmegen and then he had very badly hit with plague there. So it has a fascinating history for plague. But so it's all about people's stories and that's, that's this kind of thing. So it's this dialogue and that's how you know that you're reaching out to to people. And because, I mean, it's, it's the feedback you get and that the museums get. Mm-hmm. That's a big thing, yeah. How is the relationship with the museums? Are the museums generally interested to, because you know your your work cannot be placed in between art museums or science museums, which they also also mm. exist. And I, I can see how the audience that goes to the museums it would be pretty different. You know, science museums is people that are already somewhat interested in science, where arts, you know, there are more on art. Have you mm. seen a difference of how your work is perceived or experienced in these two kind of arenas? I mean, it's all about the way it's installed in those places as well, because I've been to shows where they're kind of trying to tell a story about a particular area of science. And there was a show about AI at the Barbican. I, I wasn't involved in it. But the way they hung it was a lot of stories about the history of AI and AI and artworks in between them and it was very hard to work out what the artworks were and what the sort of science bits were the way they were presented and I found I sort of I mean I knew what they were because I knew the some of the artists but I was like this isn't the ideal way of showing this because it's not 
it, it was very confusing like that to allow people to think kind of to have these aesthetic sensations as well so I think it's fine to show it in science context and science museums but you have to be careful as to how it's shown in those settings um, so you need to create a space for it with lighting that's right and things like that so you you see it more like that I tend to show more in art galleries because as you say the science audiences already know about the science to an extent I think it's the arts audiences and the wider public who are the ones that we really want to reach with these stories and also if you are a scientist and you come to the art gallery you're kind of primed for thinking kind of more broadly, more aesthetically mm-hmm. about the subject. And it's that, it's that sort of sense of aesthetics and by which I, I don't mean just is it pretty or not. That's not aesthetics. Aesthetics is like all those kind of sensations you feel like the sublime, disgust, horror, terror, beauty. All those things can be a, a part of sort of aesthetic theory. Mm-hmm. So I want people to kind of be able to have that sort of gamut of... Experience, yeah. Because there is... There's beauty in bacteria. Oh, of um, course. And there's yes. amazing stories which kind of can philosophically transport you to like a completely other world. It's otherworldly. And then there's all this history as well. So I kind of want people to be in a mindset where they let that in because mm-hmm. it's in the work and I want them to let that in. Yeah. That's why the Museum of History of Science was wonderful because it was part of the ancient city walls of Oxford was the wall of the gallery. Was the, <laughs> and it's got all that kind of... Also, the next door room was the alchemy lab of uh, oh. the scientists. So it was like, it's it's kind of there, you know, it's, it's all that history is in it and the future. So mm-hmm. it's, it's those sort of threads that I really love to explore. Yeah, I, I definitely understand what you mean, that the setup and the mindset that the people go into a place might be different and that actually has a, a big a role into how you experience and a piece of our work and... And I also think it's beautiful that uh, you try to evoke all these, let's just say, primal emotions. And the intention is is that through these artworks, they feel something rather than just they learn something. Because mm-hmm. I also think that a lo- there's a lot of learning through feeling. You know, when you feel mm-hmm. connected to something, when you experience emotions, it's going to be a much more long-lasting knowledge that you are going to gather about something and I think it's beautiful how you set up your artworks and then you have these little explanations and then they go back and forth and it's like oh this means this and this is that and how do I relate to this you know the relationship between the audience and the artwork piece as well is just amazingly good I think we're getting to the end of our interview but I have a couple of questions Uh, your artwork is mostly at the moment being shown uh, in the UK a lot of our listeners are maybe not in the UK or around if you have to choose a couple of your pieces of work for them to look into in your website which ones would you uh, guide them to Hmm. make do mend I would say Um, it's not on show at the moment so this is a website one but that's a piece where I it's all about the history of antibiotics and when I first sequenced whole genome sequence of staph aureus from my body I found that it was penicillin resistant which 80% are so it's not a big deal but anyway I was very interested in this idea of can you can you get rid of antibiotic resistance you know like in the lab how would you do this? Um, and so, well, I did a lot of research into things like could you do plasmid curing and things like that. But it's not it's, it's not on a plasmid in mine, I think. So I was very interested in could I remove it kind of in the lab? And when I learned about CRISPR technology, it first came out. I decided that I would try and do a CRISPR edit on a bacterium to remove from the genome um, an antibiotic resistance gene so I ended up using an E. coli that had an ampicillin resistance gene on it I cut out the ampicillin resistance gene and I put in a repair sequence that um, encoded the phrase make do and mend which is a UK wartime phrase that means to patch to repair things not to throw things away and to you know it's it's all about darning and patching and and things like that and then 1941 is the start of the antibiotic age so the that was the year that the UK government introduced something called the utility mark which was to use things 
like sustainably with resources, not throw things away. And so they would stamp CC41 on everything, Controlled Commodity 1941. And it was all to do with this make, do a men thing. So the clothes would be controlled commodities from 1941. But penicillin wasn't. As we know, antibiotics have been overused and used wrongly and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Not that we understood that at the time. Mm-hmm. It's like emerging knowledge. So the piece is all about that. And I actually patched a 1941 uh, wartime women's suit with cloth that was grown with the E. coli that I patched to remove its antibiotic resistance gene. So that that's a piece, mm-hmm. quite complicated one. <laughs> um, and then lots of people love the plague dress, which mm-hmm. is um, all about the history of plague and has plague DNA in it. That's a, a, another favourite. And in Finland at the moment, I've got Ulu um, Museum of Art, um, my uh, Archaea bot, which I made with Alex May, which it's it's not so much about antibiotic resistance, but it's about... It's called a post-singularity, post-climate change life form. And it's an underwater robot. And that's that's on show at the moment. <laughs> that's great. That's great. We will definitely link on the show notes the links to all these uh, exhibitions that are found online and also your website who has a lot of content that is super, super good. All right. I think as a final thing for our interview, you know, the majority of our audience are related to science or so more on the science mm-hmm. side. As an artist, what would you want to tell them? What do what would you like them to know or perhaps to do or start thinking about around their work? Around the art side. I mean, so there's, there's several camps with scientists, but some of them uh, are just like, they don't get art. It, uh, and they were sort of put off it at school. They see there's this thing and it might be good for publicity if they have to do it, they don't know. But if you are one of them, I'd say open your mind to it. Maybe have a look at my website or something like that. Because artists aren't all like, I think there's a sort of idea that they think that artists are just kind of coming in. They don't really look into this. They're not as fascinated as they are. They're not doing it properly or something like that. It's not necessarily true. There's a lot of artists who have very advanced in this stuff and going very deep into the stories behind it and the actual science behind things and the history. And I think most microbiologists love the history of microbiology. There's a lot of that in my work that they would probably get something off. So that that might help draw them in as well. But I'd say open your mind to to this because there's a there's a world of art out there that's just for you. It's it's like the kind of art that you would that you think art should be about because you <laughs> love microbiology so much. There is that out there so you can you can come and appreciate it hopefully and uh, yeah get in touch if you want to as well I'm on all kinds of social medias yeah that's great we're also going to leave the links to those yeah sometimes uh, when I talk to my friends that are not within science or within art I tell them that I think art and science actually have a lot in common you know the way that mm-hmm. you should approach science is a little bit like you should approach art which is being creative trying to think outside the box where can you find the clues that will guide you to the point where you want to be either to present an artwork and also for the science and I think also if you are well trained it's a lot about intuition as well which is very similar to how you would approach an art piece as well so there's a lot of similarities and when people Mm. tell me oh you're a scientist but you also love painting watercolors and photography how is that possible they're not that different like when you Mm. think about them they're quite similar and I think they complement each other also very nicely so it was a pleasure to have you with us uh, Anna thank you so much I hope uh, that our audience enjoy listening to your story and to your mind as much as I did and I hope we keep in touch and get to learn more about how to bring together antibiotics bacteria and art through your work thank you so much Anna thank you bye bye Welcome back, everyone. I hope that you had a good time listening to Anna. I sure really enjoyed talking to her. And I know, Jenny, that you also, like me, have been following Anna's work for quite some time because, I mean, it's really beautiful work, but also has a lot of meaning and it's very unique. I don't think there's a lot of people doing the kind of work that she's doing. So what did you think of the interview? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, definitely. Like you said, I've I've been following her for a few years at least and I was really excited when you said you were going to interview her because I really wanted to hear her side of things and kind of how she got into this and everything and a few things kind of really hit me from her interview so right at the beginning when she was kind of talking about how she got into it this thing that internet 
and it's like the dawn of the internet for the ordinary person was kind of how she started opening her horizons a bit, I guess, and looking at new fields. And it's just the kind of thing of, I mean, the old physical barriers of like, uh, like as she said, there was a good library for sciences in her university, but it was at a different campus and it just wasn't like, it wasn't where she was. It wasn't accessible for her for that way. And it's the kind of thing of like how much things have changed in the recent past that it's so much information is open to so many people and becomes more a problem of like, how do we curate this information for the public? And then you get these sorts of things like Wikipedia mm -hmm. that to try to help curate information to everybody rather than specializing. And I mean, it's not like a we're not done. And I mean, as Anna mm -hmm. says, like the, the certain things that we as scientists kind of tell people outside of natural sciences might be to scare or to like often to try to get funding or try to get interest for something. It's not maybe the full story. And it was, this was a nice story of somebody like kind of taking power and getting the information themselves and using internet to do that. I mean, it was just this nice like story of how information can help, you know, how learning mm -hmm. new things, how getting into new fields can do something. Yeah, I think the access to information has changed so much. Like even us, we are not so old, but I still remember, you know, when I was young uh, at my parents and at my grandparents, we had like an encyclopedia that took like a whole uh, two shelves of, um, you know, of a piece of furniture in the in the living room and then if yeah. if something came up in the tv and i was like asking a question oh what does this mean or what is this or what it does we'll go there and we will open the book and then there's this limitation information that you can get there now when i'm watching yeah. a tv show and a concept comes in i don't understand i go to google and i can spend two hours reading about it if you get into the rabbit hole so it's incredible mm -hmm. how much the access to information has changed and the possibilities, like Anna is an example, but also here at the center, we talk about how important it is for AMR people to understand each other and get information from fields that might not be so, so close to their own. And the internet has made all this available for all of us. Yeah. And I mean, I tend to forget this sometimes because I really grew up as internet was coming out. I mean, I remember like dial up and I remember all this kind of thing but it was always kind of there or it was growing in the background like in the times that I remember so I mean I forget that there was like a whole time I mean I'm reminded sometimes when my dad talks about his PhD because he tells me about how he had to like look at all the papers separately and like organize I mean it just sounds so difficult compared to now and I you do we just hit something in on the search bar find like five articles that match okay great done research is just done very differently nowadays but I also really enjoyed listening to Anna talk, like just her way of thinking. It was very philosophical. And I like, I loved some of the phrases she used, like the sublime ecosystem when she was thinking about microbiome stuff before it really had that phrase microbiome that most people recognize now. This idea of like challenging the perception that comes, I mm -hmm. think, from somebody with a background in art, mm -hmm. kind of trying to turn things on their head and look at it from a different way, which is kind of undervalued in the natural sciences. We, we think of natural science people as maybe having certain skill sets, but mm -hmm. creativity and intuition, as you mentioned, too, in the interview, are so important. And I mean, as somebody who's still working on like my PhD, still in my natural sciences education, my creativity is really something that I've felt is like a skill that I need to develop. It was lacking in the beginning. And I didn't think you needed to be that creative to be a microbiologist. <laughs> but you really need a certain level of creativity to develop new methods. I mean, all this kind of thing. It's it's undervalued, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. As I mentioned that I always believe that science and art are much closer than what a lot of people understand or think. I think yeah. Anna realizes that as well. And that you know they they need you to be in in the place where you are the connector of things you can have access to one type of knowledge another one and then do they connect somehow can you use one knowledge for the other or can you create or new ideas that's how it really works and for art is a, a bit similar you know you have like this concept like for example for Anna I think her her art is very conceptual based in a in a way and then you cannot mm -hmm. make it into something physical in order to share an idea or uh, teach or inspire yeah. other people but it's 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 like this it's like how you put these things together and then you create something and in in science we are also creating things all the time mm. i really enjoy or i i appreciate rather 
that science is taught from a different point of view than the point of view that we as scientists have. Because I love science communication and there's a lot of science communication done by scientists themselves. But I feel like perhaps the concepts or the things that they want to teach, albeit true and important, are different than how an artist or a philosopher might see uh, the impact of science, right? And what could it mean and how can people get closer and approach it right so I think Anna's point of view is Mm -hmm. one that can be of importance for a lot of people to get closer to science right it's like bringing these more metaphysical and more philosophical aspects of life what does it mean to have all these bugs in us so she's teaching you the facts and the truth this is what's happening this is the situation what could it mean right yeah, and I think really she mentioned it too, just like the people having an emotional response and the kind of connection that gives you with what you're, I mean, that's a great way to learn something. And we've talked about this before with um, when you're talking to AMR patients that have been affected personally and you get, you hear their story, you get an emotional response, you kind of live into their experience a little bit. I mean, this is very similar in the sense of you want somebody to really feel something, to experience something to learn and to to take in this information it's it's a huge part of it mm-hmm. and that's so much a part of art i mean i say as somebody that's not at all an artist personally but it feels like it's just tapping into emotions and kind of including that in your presentation in a sense it's a very useful thing for us too i mean aside from like mm-hmm. that art always has a place it's also it can be very useful for us. I just think it's so cool that you know you can bring these th- these seemingly very far apart things together in in a way yeah. and like the way that she does it. And I really recommend. I said it in the interview, but I repeat it now. Please go to her website and check all these art mm. pieces because they are really well photographed. Everything is on the website. You can get even a description of what's going on, and you are going to find things that you never really probably thought about because even, you know, me that I work with this day in, day out, and I'm very inclined to constantly look at what artists are doing. There are things that I just like, how did she actually come up with this idea? It's just so cool. Like we were talking about, you really like the make do and men. I've loved her make do and men piece for a long time because it's just, there's so many layers and levels to it and it's so thought Mm -hmm. out. In my mind, like, because it's something that it's also, to me, feels kind of, I don't know, not obvious, but just like the, oh, I use CRISPR to cut out a resistance gene. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's something that happens in our lab from that. Like, that's a thing we do. But like, mm-hmm. the levels of, oh, and it's the make do and men phrase and the 1941. Yeah, like, it's the just, meaning, there's right? so many cool layers to it. And as she said, it's historical, too. I mean, she talks a lot about the history of science. And I mean, that is something that I find super interesting as well. So I just, it's. Oh, I just I love that piece. I particularly really like the ex voto one. Uh, if I have to mm-hmm. choose a favorite, because I I find that whatever cool thing you're doing with artistry, if you can bring the public into it as well, which is part of that yeah. project, is like the people themselves they think about it. What is it that I, I want to give like a pray or a thank you, and then they manually work into it and and you create this big collection. So I particularly really like the ex voto one, um, but they are all really cool. So yeah, there's a lot of great mm-hmm. things. These are just our personal favorites. But yeah, strongly recommended to to look at all her work and I follow her on Twitter and I think that's also recommended. You can see what else has happening. Mm-hmm. I think we should move on to our news though with that. Yes, let's do that for this month of September, which uh, academic year starting up. More things are going to come up. Oh my up. God, things have gone so fast. <laughs> I know. But yeah. Okay, see so you in the news. Welcome to the news section for this month of September. Today we have a paper. It's unfortunately not open access, but maybe you can get some information anyways. We'll go through that. It's called uh, Patient Access in 14 High-Income Countries to New Antibacterials Approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, European Medicines Agency, Japanese Pharmaceuticals and Medical Devices Agency, or Health Canada 2010 to 2020. It's a very long title. Uh, Published in Clinical Infectious Diseases in July 2021. Basically, a lot of work previously has been put in looking at access to antibiotics in 
low and middle income countries. And of course, we know that we've talked about this before, that it's a problem there. There's very little access to the newer antibiotics. Sometimes there's access only to very few antibiotics that can be maybe called primitive antibiotics that are have high levels of resistance issues mm -hmm. as well. So here we're looking at like the new antibiotics that have been approved in the last 10 years. Uh, they look at 18 different antibacterials and 14 high-income countries, including the G7 countries, as well as other several other European high-income countries. Long story short, the access is a problem in these countries as well. So Ava, can you tell us a little bit about the results from this paper? Yeah, so I think this paper probably will come as a surprise to a lot of people because a lot of people hear a lot about, you know, the problems in low and middle income countries, as you were saying. I think that the motivation was like, okay, so where are the problems? Where are we seeing these, these things that, that we were supposed to have 10 new antibiotics by 2020? So in the beginning of 2000 mm -hmm. or 2009, they say, okay, by 2020, we want to have 10 new antibiotics. And on paper, we got to that point, but they were seeing not a lot of these are actually you know, really getting to the patients. So what's, what's the problem there? They did this, yeah. uh, this work in the countries that you mentioned, and what they found is there is generally a big lag between the point where these drugs are actually approved by this organization, like we said, the, the FDA and the EMA. EMA in Europe and the equivalents in other countries. There is a lag between the approval and actually the commercial launch of the drug if it gets there, because in some cases, the drugs doesn't even make it to the commercial launch because there's a lot of hurdles in between. Yeah. So talking a little bit about the results and the numbers, what they found is that in all but three countries, the majority of these 18 antibacterial drugs have not been launched by the end of 2020, which is very sad. Mm -hmm. A surprising result for me was that of all these countries, Canada was the country that had the fewest drugs actually in the patients, which it comes to me as a surprise. I don't know if I have this utopic view of how Canada administration and bureaucracy works, and I will have expect to be one of the fastest ones, but somehow that's mm. really not the case. Well, it comes down to a numbers game there. Uh, I mean, Canada's a small market. It also comes down to how these companies are reimbursed in functioning healthcare systems, which I have to say my personal opinion is that the US healthcare system is not functioning. It's not um, the reimbursement mm -hmm. process might not really be actually including the value of having a new antibiotic that's not going to be used. So they found that much, as we said, the much of the lag happened after the regulatory approval mm -hmm. and that some drugs actually got pulled after the approval and before the market authorization because they were predicted to have very low sales. Yeah. So they make these drugs, they get actually the approval by the administrations and then what they have to do is a forecast of, okay, how much are we going to be able to sell? Uh, how much are we going to be able to make due to the constraints into how much we can ask for these drugs? Mm -hmm. And some of them, they basically just can really justify to continue the processes because you have to have in mind that this process between approval and commercial launch is not free. It's really expensive to go through marketing authorization submission, marketing yeah. authorization approval, and then getting into the commercialization step. It takes money. It's, it's a point where the company is still not making any profit out of the drug but still it needs to spend more money to get into the market yeah. so after the approval some companies are like okay in this market we're gonna put it out we have to ask for this amount per unit sold and we for forecast that it's only going to be sold by this much it's just not worth it and um, that's why some companies have gone bankrupt at yeah. that stage and why some drugs have been pulled out from the process altogether Another part that kind of surprised me because what they did was also look into if there is some sort of correlation. Now we know there are these lags in the different countries and for the different drugs. Can we find any correlation if some kind of drugs are more prone to have longer lags than others? So they look, for example, at uh, drugs that were in the essential medicine list by the WHO or were not in the essential medicine list. They look into drugs that were classified as to be more innovative or less innovative. And they try to see if there's any correlations there. What they found is that there is no correlation at all with innovativeness. So you would expect maybe things that are more innovative, they are actually going to be approved faster because there are things that work differently that might be more needed in the market. 
but they found no correlation. And they found a very interesting and backwards correlation, which was that the drugs that were included in the essential medicine list, on average, were significantly taking longer time to get into the market, which I was like, this paper was very surprising for me, to be honest. And they also mentioned uh, the WHO AWARE designations. So if it's uh, access, Mm -hmm. watch or reserve antibiotics and reserve antibiotics then are ones that should be reserved and not used unless absolutely necessary. And a lot of these antibiotics were labeled Mm -hmm. as reserve antibiotics because they're new, they're novel. That's kind of the point. But they were talking about how that designation actually limits the company's ability to sell that antibiotic, which is how they would be making the money back at this point. That's that's the only way they have to make the money back. So this designation of reserve or essential might actually be a negative thing for the company. And some of these, several of these companies have gone bankrupt. Yeah. Several of them have been sold for very low value. Mm-hmm. It's a dark view. If you're somebody looking at developing a new antibiotic, this is not promising. It is not. I think a lot of this also ties into that it's often small and medium enterprises, SMEs, that are making the more innovative, maybe the the newer, the more useful is a really loaded phrase. But I mean, if we're talking about it that way, that we need access to, but we need very little of it. Yeah. They also mentioned how the fact that all these drugs are coming into the market after a non-inferiority trial rather than a superiority trial. I don't know if any of you remember that we talked with John Rex about this, how important it is. Mm-hmm. The fact that they are approved by a, a non-inferiority trial, that means that this drug is not doing worse than the reference drug that is compared to and that is already on the market. In some instances, in some markets, that also means that they cannot get more reimbursement for the new drug that's coming into the market. It has to be the same reimbursement than the comparator drug. That means that yeah. it even limits more the amount of profit mm-hmm. that they can make for these drugs. That's what I meant with there's no monetary number given to the value that's of just having this antibiotic available and approved and in market. These uh, restrictions as to how much they can be reimbursed are there for a good reason. It's to try to avoid market gauging and that sort of thing. I mean, it's it's not bad. It's just in this case, it's going against what we need. It's not helping the patient in that sense. Mm-hmm. So like, I'm not saying that these sorts of restrictions are bad. It's just that in this case, they're actually limiting the innovation of new antibiotics. They're limiting the access because it's such a special case where you want there to be several, but you don't want to sell a lot. As you mentioned, yeah, they talk very clearly about the constraints that are actually limiting this process and that embed in the system because the system hasn't changed, but the circumstances around the system have changed and we want them to make a difference. So this together, you know, that the payment for the hospitals go through diagnostic related groups, that the governments are requiring price reductions on the drugs, that there is an impact of uh, stewardship. Now we really are having stewardship programs that really end up having less use of antibiotics in the hospitals and the community, which is good. Yeah. And then the longer delays also means that there is shorter time within the patent time to actually make money off this drug. Because for anyone out there that maybe doesn't know very well, after it gets approval, there is a, a patent time, which might last, I don't know how long it is, maybe 10, 15 years. But that's the time where the company has a window to make profit of this drug. After that time, then it becomes kind of public and then there is no direct revenue out of this drug. So if these lag times get longer and longer, this is a time where they are not making any money off the drug and it's only, you know, shooting them in the foot, so to speak, you know, are trying to put it into the market. Yeah. It's also worth mentioning that they look into previous analysis of this kind of, of data and it just has gotten worse for the countries that they were looking into. They look into Japan all data, into Canada all data. It's significantly slower to bring these drugs into the market. And uh, I think there are two other notes that are good to bring up from their discussion. They were talking about how if you calculate together the entire antibacterial branded market, so all antibacterials that were approved from the decade beginning from the 1st of January 2010 to the last of December 2020, was valued at less than a single blockbuster drug. So that means basically all of these antibiotics together made less money than one single blockbuster drug of a different kind. And when you see that kind of information, it's not that confusing as to why there's not a lot of companies wanting 
to go into this field. It's hard to convince somebody to drain money down for this. It, it's not an easy argument. It just goes to show that the current system does not work for these kinds of drugs. And uh, another note, that's a little bit more optimistic. They talk about our local situation. So we're based in Sweden and they talk about Sweden's pilot program. There, there are a few ongoing, but they talk specifically about Sweden's because uh, Sweden's a relatively small market. So the, it was an interesting thing to see here that Sweden had the third highest number of commercial launches, three of which happened relatively recently uh, since Sweden announced their uh, pilot program where they reimburse We've talked about it before as a Netflix subscription model. So basically, they promise a certain amount of money to a company that can guarantee access when needed. They're not paying for the drugs per unit. They're paying for access over time. And they kind of speculate or look into it that these newest launches in this otherwise maybe not so appealing market might be because of this program. And it might show that, I mean, this program in Sweden doesn't have anything to do with innovative drugs or anything like that. It's not really about making new things, but it's about access to these newer antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's nice to see that that maybe is working. And this whole time I was reading this paper, I was like, why is Sweden doing so well compared to the other European countries that are bigger markets and everything like that? I was sitting here like, what did we do here? <laughs> and then at the end, I was thinking if it might be this program, because I didn't remember the dates of the program when, when things happened. And uh, it's nice to see mm -hmm. that that might actually be successful. And it's, it goes to show that other countries can benefit from this. So I thought that was a really nice example of something working, of an improvement mm -hmm. and a potential improvement. Yeah. But it was a it was a sad article. <laughs> it was. I think it's it's important to look into this and to really understand where where the limitations are, right? And yeah, hopefully take the knowledge into action. Try to fix these parts and and not try to really. Like, I think the problem here is that the scaffold of how the system works, it's the same. It has not changed. We need to sell these drugs and make money off these drugs enough to pay all the money that was put into making them, which is a lot. But mm. all the little things in between these scaffolds that will actually connect them, it's change. Like yeah. stewardship and asking for less prices, uh, you know, all those things. And it just doesn't work. So we need to find a new scaffold mm -hmm. where we can put all these things regarding antibiotic use and antibiotic sales. And then perhaps we can get somewhere. It's kind of like we've fixed some problems or like we're working on some problems, but we haven't like caught up with the other side of it. Like these yeah. things have to work together and we're just not really balanced yet. We're not there yet, right? Also, through the newsletter of John Rex, we got to know about a big report just published by the Global AMR R&D Hub, which has the title Estimating Global Patient Needs and Market Potential for Priority Health Technologies Addressing Antimicrobial Resistance. And it's a quite long report, but it's an important report because we just talked about how, you know, the markets are kind of failing and we cannot really get the drugs there for what they are needed for because of how the system works at the moment. So they are looking into, yeah, what are the needs, what is the potential for the market, and what should we prioritize in terms of technologies in order to help the problem of antimicrobial resistance and the patients present and future as well. So we are going to leave the link to it. You can, of course, take a look. This is open access. This is available and accessible. And it has a very nice beginning with policy insights and recommendations. That's what I mean. Like it has a very nice yeah. beginning where you can just get, you know, a summary of those recommendations of those policy. And yeah. then if you really are more interested in some of these particular parts, then you can go in depth, very in depth about it. But it's a really really cool um, report and I'm really happy that there's people putting the time on doing these things as well. Yeah, definitely. And on maybe future things coming, the tripartite organizations, FAO, the OIE and the WHO are trying to get information from different stakeholders on elements of the proposed a AMR multi-stakeholder partnership platform. So they've actually opened like a public survey where they're hoping to get a feedback from people, all kinds of people, anyone with any kind of stakeholder in this situation to kind of see what what's needed, what's going to happen here, what what is what should this be, in a sense, if I've understood it right. So this is highly recommended. It's about 10 to 15 minute survey, they said, in three parts. It's completely confidential. We'll leave a link to that. I mean, it's great to see that they're opening up for this kind of thing and they're trying to 
if I understand right, there's specifically hoping to get information from people who maybe whose voices aren't always heard. So maybe lower middle income countries, people working out in the field, people that have so much information that tend to not be able to give this information to the people that need it. So this is a really good chance if you have any sort of feedback to give them, any sort of information of what, what what's needed, what should we do, please fill out this survey. It's a good chance. And of course, like if you have colleagues, you know someone, I think we are really trying to get this survey before it closes as far as possible and as to many people as yeah. possible. Of course, there's always limited by access to internet. Yes. But given that limitation, let's try to make it out there and to the many people as, as possible. Absolutely. So we would be really happy if you can also share this around in your networks if you can. But with that, I think we're wrapping up for this month of September. Mm hmm fall is coming so hopefully yeah hopefully everybody's doing well and fall is already safe. here <laughs> but with that we'll say goodbye for the month and uh see you next month yeah bye bye guys see you back for more information about the Uppsala antibiotic center please visit our website you can find a link in the episode notes you can also follow us in twitter our handle is uac underscore uu this episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm. <laughs>